0: Hello and welcome to Love and Science. I'm Andrew and we're going to be talking about great white sharks. We're going to hear from somebody who actually swam with one of the biggest great white sharks, if not the biggest, that we've ever seen. We're going to hear from a professor who says that the evidence in our planet shows us that the likelihood is that the huge prehistoric sharks, the megalodons, were wiped out by supernova explosions far out in space. But before all that, this last week Professor Joe Dunkley, who is a professor of cosmology at Princeton University, visited Bristol to give a talk at Bristol's wonderful Festival of Ideas. Joe is the author of a book entitled Our Universe, and I began by asking her what the talk would be about.
1: Well, it's about our universe, uh, both our real universe and, and, and the story I've tried to tell about it in my new book. It's about humans' quest to understand our bigger story. It's something that I do as my job, but I really wanted to share with the, with the public what we know about this bigger universe we live in.
0: And you're picking out particular people from that story?
1: That's right. I think to me it's it's compelling to to know not only what we currently know about space and everything in it, but how we know it, because it's that that's part that's part of the excitement is how we did it, um, and and actually particularly in writing it, I. I wanted to tell the story of some of these scientists and some of them I, I found particularly compelling were the ones I had heard less about or knew less about and some of them in particular were women, women astronomers mm. um, which I'm sure I found compelling because I'm a woman and you know <laughs> some of them I was just fascinated by some of their lives and, you know how they looked after their kids and how they handled you know um, uh, people telling them that they couldn't do things because they were women and things I, I found that really interesting. Um, Is that something you find today? Um, still yes but much less so I mean when I look back to so some of the people I was looking at were um, these amazing astronomers at the turn of the last century they were called the Harvard computers so computers being people computers not machine computers and they worked at Harvard and their job was to like study images of stars but they weren't allowed to operate telescopes because they're women <sighs> so that doesn't happen anymore we are we are allowed so that there are th- things big things like that have changed Mm. Um, we can now do all the jobs you know, that everyone can do but there are definitely biases still in our field and you know, both conscious and unconscious mm. that mean there are just fewer of us still than I think there should be or would be if these cultural perceptions didn't persist yeah. Vera Rubin is one of my big heroes she showed convincingly that this thing called dark matter exists so this is invisible stuff that seems to fill our universe There's like five times more of it than we are made of she found it back in the 1970s by looking at how fast galaxies spin. Galaxies are like whole mi- cluster, clusterings of like 100 billion stars spinning around. And she found out they were all moving too fast, spinning too fast. And it only made sense if they were actually much bigger than you could see and much heavier. Um, and, and actually even then she was the first woman, even in the 1960s, to be allowed to use this, this great observatory in California. Wow. Yeah. Um, it's,
0: it's mad isn't it that we, we I mean Dark Matter Dark, is so in the public psyche and the name Vera Rubin isn't in the public psyche the way that Einstein is or that you know even Feynman is you know I mean that's and that's that's really strange
1: I think that's true I, and, I, and I think I hope that will change I think I'd like to see it change not only in terms of recognising some of these past achievements But that going forward we don't see that happening anymore. I was thrilled, so just this this past year, one of my other heroes, Jocelyn Bell Burnell, um, won the Breakthrough Prize for Fundamental Physics after she should have won the Nobel Prize. She discovered these incredible, incredibly dense spinning stars called pulsars. They're like the densest stars that exist in the universe. Um, And she found them by kind of by Picking out this really faint signal and this data that she'd measured when she was a PhD student in Cambridge, she found them. She's working with her with her PhD supervisor. He got the Nobel Prize for the discovery, and she didn't. But then, just this last year, she won this you know enormous prize. I think in recognition of her work. Mm. So. Yeah, she's brilliant. She's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, right. So, if you're
0: looking across the astronomy community. Today, yeah. um, who are the people who you you think we'll be talking about in the future? The way we should be talking about Vera Rubin.
1: Oh uh, yeah. So I mean, there's there's there are so many people doing exciting things, and I and I think well the, the thing that's changed we we're we'll, we're always going to have superstars, but the nature of astronomy has changed so that the big discoveries are being done by teams now. They're really not individuals. You know, we all work in teams of you know hundreds of people, or at least you know many tens of people. Because one person can't really make that discovery by themselves. You have to build a really big telescope. You have to, you know, analyze the data, figure out the theories. And so they are all pieces. And so many of us in astronomy, you know, wish that the big prizes, like the Nobel Prize, or this is in physics too, would be given to the teams of people who do this. Mm. Um, And and, uh, of course we're still going to have amongst those, you know, the... The, the leaders and the, the people coming up with great ideas. Yeah. But I think that uh, that's, that's a big shift that's happened in the field.
0: Yeah, there's a James Webb Space Telescope. Yeah. Is there a tele- Is that going to feed into what you're saying, or is there another telescope that's going to be...?
1: A little bit. So the, the James Webb is going to be exciting. It'll be the Hubble's replacement and the huge space telescope that will be able to look at, you know, very young galaxies, you know, very distant galaxies and look at... Uh, the atmosphere of planets. For me, actually, the thing that I do, we're actually building new, a set of new telescopes now in the north of Chile. It's called the Simons Observatory. Um, so that's going to come online in 2021, and we'll run it for the 2020s. And mm. so that's um, uh, this, these four new telescopes that can better measure light from the Big Bang, which is the thing I look brilliant. at. Oh, um, brilliant. But there really is a, series, a, a like, whole set of new different telescopes coming. up. Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, some lovely stuff coming, isn't there? Yeah, I like the square kilometer array. Yeah, day,
1: is that it? is exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah, very, very cool. But when you say that you use a telescope in Chile, you don't go to Chile, right?
1: I don't. I mean, I've been a couple of times, and someone from someone from our team is usually visiting at some point And there are people there who are making it work. But the way it works is that um, uh, the data gets collected in Chile. Uh, we control it remotely from. North America or from international anywhere else in that because we've got, you know, there's a wifi. Yes. There's, there's a link to it. Yeah. Um, and then the data actually the, the data connection is such that we've just got the best way to transfer it is we get it all on disk and usually then someone who's coming back from Chile literally carries the disks of data on the airplane back to North America. really, And then we put it onto big computer clusters in, in North America. Um, and we'll end up with terabytes of data. Mm. And then that, all our researchers can like, remotely access this large cluster of computers from their own little laptop. So it will sit and maybe, the data will sit on like yeah, one giant computer or two giant computers. Mm. And then we all kind of access that.
0: That's kind of funny, isn't it? Because like the internet's, well, the web is 30 years old next month. Yeah, it's kind of funny to think of you actually carrying the discs.
1: I know. Well, actually, in our new te- one of the big things for our new telescopes that we're building now is that we will. There is there is actually a link from a different bigger facility in Chile mm. that's a fast link back. Yeah. That's, we'll do. We'll, we with our upcoming data, we'll send it all via that link. Mm. I don't know if there's anything wrong
0: with carrying it. It's just quite fun. To <laughs> think, <isn't it>? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Literally carrying the data. But it's the same. It. You
1: know, the thing—the thing happens in the other way around. Is that you know, quite recently, two of the graduate students on our team carefully, painstakingly carried <laughs> new arrays of detectors, part of the instrument, as hand luggage on the flight down to Chile. <sighs> right, and then they yeah. installed them on the telescope. Yeah. Um, you know, you've wow. got to get it there somehow. Yeah. That's right, that's really fun.
0: Because I mean, like the, the way that you're using the telescope is doing
1: a massive survey, right? That's right. So you're not saying I want to look at that? No, bit. that's right. I'm just basically kind of like scanning across the sky looking yeah. at a lot of it.
0: Why does that look at that time? Why does it not see what's in the way?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. So one thing we have to be careful of is that we have to avoid... We live in this Milky Way, this disk, a big galaxy that's in the shape of a disk, where there is lots of light coming out from the disk of the galaxy so we have to quite carefully like avoid looking at that part of the sky where there's really a lot of light coming out from the galaxy but because we look at this like microwave light most of the stuff up in the sky is not sending out this wavelength and so um so actually if we stare out the, s- the stars are not really bothering us because they're not sending out they're, they're not in our way hmm. um but there are definitely things that are sending out light. And one of the things actually I do in my research is, is work on like methods to disentangle the stuff that's coming from close by with the stuff that's coming from further away. I wasn't, I wasn't the kid who knew as a kid that I wanted to be an astronomer. I loved doing maths. That was my, that was my absolute favourite subject at school. And then I realised that I could use it to answer questions about things, hmm. about the world. And then when I got to university, I did do physics and I, I you know, studied Red, special relativity where you suddenly discover that like space and time are not absolute mm-hmm. and it kind of blew my mind in a, in a fun way. I discovered that I loved computer coding, like everything I do the, the main kind of tool of, of my trade is writing computer code and I discovered that I really loved it
0: That's Professor Joe Dunkley talking to me ahead of her talk at Bristol Festival of Ideas and some really wonderful ideas and talks that they do have as part of that festival. Another fantastic idea, which has been in the science news recently, is that the megalodons, these huge giant prehistoric sharks that used to live in our oceans, may just have been wiped out by supernova explosions, exploding stars far out in space. Professor Adrian Mellet is the man whose paper suggests that this might be the case. I spoke to him recently and began by asking him what the evidence was for this claim.
2: That is Iron 60 found in deposits on the Earth. Iron 60 can only come basically from a supernova. It's carried on dust grains and end up hitting the Earth's atmosphere and depositing on the Earth. Well... The evidence is is a slam dunk for one supernova, and there is less certain evidence for there being a chain of maybe a dozen, not too far from the Earth over several million years. With a big spike 2.6 million years ago, which may indicate uh, the closest one, there was one then, definitely, but there is some evidence for perhaps up to a dozen over several million years. There's also a a cavity called the local bubble in the interstellar medium, which is uh, pretty large, and it's essentially an area dominated by hot gas and empty of other clouds and things. These kind of structures are typically formed by chains of supernovae going off one after the other, kind of blowing this hole. The evidence
0: on the Earth fits with the formation of the local bubble also. So what makes you think that that would be the possible cause of the extinction of things like the megalodon?
2: Well, we began looking at the various effects, and what we discovered was that the increase in cosmic ray flux and and then the muons on the ground from that were much larger than it people had suspected. Then we did computations of what happens when these cosmic rays hit the atmosphere. Well, most of them are stopped in the upper atmosphere, but they produce showers, and the showers of elementary particles include a lot of muons. Muons on the ground is probably the biggest effect on on life on the Earth. And muons are extremely penetrating. They hit us on the ground even now under normal conditions. But something like 100 to 300 times more would happen around the time of the supernova. And they would even penetrate into the ocean down to a depth of maybe a kilometer. And that would mean a big increase in radiation for creatures in the ocean. And the big creatures would experience the biggest effect because normally they only experience it on the outside because most kinds of radiation we get here on the Earth are not not at all penetrating but neurons are extremely penetrating so the interiors of these very large creatures would have a huge increase in the amount of radiation they're exposed to.
0: And then that would possibly have an impact on their evolution. Isn't it? Yeah well there are two big
2: things you get from radiation, cancer and mutations. Cancer especially could have contributed to extinction and of course in the fossil record what you see is these things exist then after a certain point they don't exist anymore you you don't see soft tissue fossilized in a way that would tell you anything yeah. about cancer
0: so but but what you're saying is, is is essentially it's a coincidence a strong coincidence of timing and effect
2: yes that's correct we calculate these effects we see that they're substantial and then we see that there's a mass extinction of megafauna at this time. And so we suggest that there may be a connection.
0: Wait, wait, sorry, where did it start from? Did you think there's the supernova, what effect did they have? Or were you looking at the supernova and then found the, the, the coincidence? How did that happen? Over the last 15 years, this has been a game of, well, these kind of
2: things should have happened at one time or another. Let's talk about them in a general way. In this particular case here's an event, you know about when it happened, you know about how far away it was, you know what kind of an event has happened. So you can much more definitely calculate the effects than you could... I mean, there are still big uncertainties, but it's a whole different ballgame when you know how far away the supernova is.
0: My understanding is that the most likely supernova for us to see in our lifetime, but probably not in our lifetime is Betelgeuse, or Betelgeuse. If that went supernova today, would it have that effect on sort of the blue whales? No, it's,
2: it's further away. Okay. So it would be very dramatic. Yeah. It would be brighter than anything uh, in recent times, certainly. I mean, you, you'd be able to see it in the daytime if it were wow. in that position. But
0: the effects would be much lower than what we've talked about because it's substantially further away. So we're not likely to see this having an impact on the evolution of blue whales in any near future and for us? I think there's no
2: large uh, supernovae likely within a million years.
0: Uh, good news for us and the blue whales there from Adrian Melott, talking to me just recently. Now I promised to bring you the story of the divers who encountered the biggest great white shark that we've ever seen. It happened just off the coast of Hawaii and I managed to catch up with one of those divers who dives with sharks, not great wikes, but sharks every single day.
3: So my name is Kaylee Burns and I am a shark safety diver and biologist for one ocean diving and we're located here on the north shore of oahu and what we do on a daily basis kind of every single day is we take guests out from all around the world all different abilities diving with sharks while we're doing that we're really lucky we get to take research data variables on the way out we kind of teach the people about behavior about the sharks um, what species they're going to interact with and kind of go over the whole experience and then we take them in the water with sharks and they have an amazing time. And we have a conservation aspect where we do campaigns Um, and we're right now currently trying to get a bill passed in Hawaii for protecting sharks and rays. Right now, there is no official protection for sharks. Um, We want to extend it to more species of ray, um, not just the manta ray, which we currently have, which is awesome, but essentially, yes, if you are within state waters, you can fish and kill a shark. You can't just take their fins, the finning is illegal, but they, they they do need more protection. They're very important keystone species for the ocean's ecosystems. Um, and they're also here in Hawaii, very culturally important. They have a very important role in the history of Hawaii. They're actually referred to as gods and Amakua people's family and ancestors. We also have reef and beach cleanups every single month. Um, as well as we go out to local schools and teach kids about sharks and even bring them on the boat and even the kids get in the water which is super amazing.
0: I mean they've got cages how does it work when you get in the water with the sharks?
3: So you don't have cages there are other cage tours around so sometimes people that prefer a cage um, you know end up coming with us afterwards after they realize like okay these animals are not at all what I've built them up in my head and most of the reason is unfortunately because of the media the media typically portray sharks as man-eating monsters um, not only in the overly dramatized movies but on very rare occasions when there is a negative interaction with a human and a shark people always like to highlight that but they don't talk about the every single day when um, sharks are totally knowing what humans are and going past them and yeah everyone's perfectly safe every single day that enters the ocean it's very relaxing actually to swim with sharks because they're so beautiful just watching them swim around is, is really nice
0: but the first day that you got in and there were sharks there
3: definitely for me now i'm, I'm so incredibly used to it and the best thing is that i've gotten to learn the behavior of the animals and how i should behave to make sure that everything is safe but I'd say most people, their first time, they're definitely going to feel the nerves. But it's pretty interesting because you'll get people come out that are really, really nervous. And as soon as they get in the water, you can slowly start to see sort of transformation with their body language and, you know, just their demeanor. And they're really calming down after a little bit. And a lot of people actually come out saying that it's a very calm, peaceful, almost like meditative experience
0: Mm -hmm. and what kind of behavior do you see from the sharks then when you're down there
3: so typically they're very again very very relaxed that overly dramatized aspect that you get in the media is totally false they spend probably about 90% of their lives just cruising conserving energy you know, they're in sort of a survival mode. There's only about, I say, like 5 to 10% of their lives where they actually are, you know, hunting and they need to sustain themselves and um, where they will turn up that behavior. But they're actually really, really polite predators and they give you a lot of signs with their body language if they're uncomfortable with their presence.
1: Mm-hmm. Just
3: like if you have, you know, a cat on Halloween, they're going to arch their back, they're going to hiss, they're going to let you know when they're starting to get uncomfortable with your presence and sharks will do the same thing but if we're not used to speaking their language and reading their language then we just miss a lot of those signs They communicate with their body language and their swim patterns and mainly with each other very closely side by side to one another right behind each other even dropping their fins if they are getting a little bit more agitated or you know if it gets to a level of like slightly opening their mouths or fluffing their gills then things like that will start to be more increased behavior
0: obviously you get out of the water in that case right uh
3: yeah if it's if it's to that level where we ever thought you know hey the sharks are competing right now maybe a bait ball of fish is coming by maybe they're actually hunting maybe there's a female in the area and the males are kind of getting territorial and um, we can always just pull people out of the water. We do have 100% perfect safety records. There's actually never been an in- incident whatsoever. Oh. Um, you're way more likely to get hurt, tripping and falling, just getting on the boat, which is um, ironic about the whole thing. <laughs> but but um, yeah, we we can always just hop people out of the water. That's the thing with diving with sharks, even though it is so beautiful and calming and, and mellow, you know, like I said, 99% of the time you can't get complacent because they are wild animals. They're not puppy dogs. And you just have to make sure you're always aware, super aware, looking around, looking behind you, just being fully present in the moment and watching the dynamics between the animals. And if anything we thought was unsafe. Yeah. Just give them a little break. You know, we can hop out of the water. There's a few different things we can adjust, even like as simple as turning off the engines, which provides an electric, electrical stimulus for the animals, so even something like that can actually just mellow out the behavior and you would be surprised to see how polite yeah. they are i would not take my chances in the lion's den i don't think
0: cool and what what kind of sharks is it that you typically see
3: what we usually see we go to a sandbar and galapagos shark aggregate site so they are pretty common the same sharks a lot of the time um, that are just staying in this sort of area um they will do a little migrational patterns at different times of the year so sometimes we have more heavily sandbar shark population sometimes we have heavily more heavily female galapagos or male galapagos and um we see those trends and we also really enjoy swimming with tiger sharks that also kind of have their own season and um on occasion maybe a scalped hammerhead head or a um, oceanic black tip. Right.
0: Wow. And do you see different? That's
3: the typical. <laughs>
0: yeah. And do you see different behaviors from those different sharks?
3: There can be, yeah. For uh, example, um, sandbar sharks in Galapagos, even scalped hammerheads heads can often school and school together and even mix the species in school together. Whereas something like a tiger shark, they're a bit more nomadic. So, they're going to spend a lot of their time solitary um, on their own nomadic species. And it's more rare to see them interact with other animals. Uh, So that only happens when we're really lucky getting multiple um, tiger sharks or larger animals like that together. If there is something like a huge dead whale or a dead turtle or something that would really be drawing in a lot of these animals, because they really don't like to compete. They're very, um, They're very more just scavengers than anything.
0: Okay, Okay. right. So I've got a feeling that everybody who's listening to this conversation will be thinking, yeah, 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 but what about the great white sharks?
3: (laughs) We had heard that there was a dead sperm whale carcass on the opposite side of our island. So, So we went to survey the sharks, see if there's any sharks that we have seen before and recognize that are in our ID catalog, as well as observe um, shark behavior. Cause as I was kind of just saying, um, it is very rare to get to see, especially tiger sharks together and interacting and behaving together. Cause most of the time they are very solitary. So that was our initial goal. The first night we observed multiple tiger sharks feeding on the carcass and their behavior. And it was very interesting, very good for the research. When we had gone out again, a few days later, And with the same intention in mind. So we were just hanging out. And um, suddenly I just saw a very large animal on the other side of the whale. And I didn't know exactly what it was. And I was pretty certain it wasn't tiger shark. So we approached closer. And we could have never imagined what happened next. We all got in. They confirmed it was a white shark. um, And as soon as my mask hit the water, just the sheer size of this animal was so overwhelming and breathtaking It was such a large white shark it was actually really beautiful I always it was my first white shark and so I always kind of thought that I would be nervous in in this scenario but it was almost just as as awesome and peaceful and if not more you know relaxed than a smaller shark because she was so big and completely gorged on whale maybe even pregnant it was like you could get out of her way really easily <laughs> you're a lot faster than her yeah surprisingly enough I mean still a very massive powerful animal definitely a lot of respect for this animal but I did not feel threatened by her in any way yeah. She's very very calm her movements very slow there was even um, dolphins that showed up and were kind of rubbing on her so <laughs> if that's any indication yeah of how kind of gentle giant she was yeah it was really amazing
0: so, so it's a very busy scene with all the different sharks and dolphins and, and and you guys in there and is it do do you feel do you sense that every kind of living species in there is focused on this enormous white shark
3: She was definitely the highlight of the show <laughs> all of the other sharks around did leave and that is very typical a larger shark coming into an area where there are smaller sharks they will typically sometimes you get the very very confident smaller sharks that will stick around mm-hmm. but these sharks definitely gave her priority gave her space got out of her way and um you know submitted to her by just leaving the area and dropping down deeper just completely you know taking off the dolphins showed up a little bit later we had gotten in with her and we saw yeah she was kind of cruising around. We did uh, observe her feeding as well, which was a pretty spectacular thing to see, especially seeing that and not feeling like... It was very clear that she knew what her food was. You know, she came up, she wanted the whale, and, um, you know, would just pass by us very gently, but just on her way to the whale, you know, she was very aware of what her food was, which was amazing. I really enjoyed making eye contact with her. It, it was a lot more personable like people kind of think that they just have these black soulless eyes but it didn't feel that way at all when it was actually in person you know you oh. kind of see the soul behind the animal yeah
0: brilliant and it, it so you've you've got that kind of the the initial excitement or thing going on then you've got this peaceful feeling but when you see her feeding do you feel the power of those jaws? And
3: yes, um, again, it goes back to these animals are not like we don't recommend that everyone go and swim with a white shark. As amazing as I know it's sounding as I describe it, because it was definitely the highlight of my life thus far. Yeah. But at the same time, they are very powerful animals because yes, they are they are predators and they're doing what they're supposed to to do, and they do have teeth and things like that. But they're very good at knowing what is food and what's not food, and we never give them enough credit for that. But what's also important to keep, like I was saying, if you don't know how to read the behavior, if you've never interacted with sharks, we definitely do not recommend anybody jumping in to swim with a white shark. Yeah. We had this perfect scenario with this exact white shark. She was, you know, really not desperate at the moment, had plenty of food source there. You know, she was slower just her demeanor she's a little bit older potentially so she's kind of been around and if, if we would have had maybe like a male juvenile a little bit more desperate who knows the last time he's actually gotten a meal and things like that then i'm not saying that he would have attacked us or any of the sharks would have but you you don't want to get complacent and just think that it could be like this every single time
0: most people don't get to swim with any sharks right and most people's experience of sharks is watching Jaws or uh, Megalodons in in the Meg. Have you watched those films?
3: Um, I have, but honestly, from the perspective of reality, they look very silly. (laughs) Um, They look very, like, just completely dramatized and made up characters it's just yeah even like the graphics just aren't good <laughs> you should watch um, documentaries like shark water or racing extinction or mexico pelagico a plastic ocean stuff like that especially um shark water and the second one is coming out which will actually show you the truth about sharks so if people want to see yeah the real the real reality of the situation That's you should definitely go with the documentaries then you get a better sense for it
1: you're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio.
0: Indeed you are. We're talking to Kaylee Burns, the biologist and diver who swims with sharks every morning. And you can't talk about sharks, you can't talk about the oceans without the topic of conservation. At the forefront of my mind, at least, whenever I think about sharks, is how appallingly badly they're treated by the shark finning industry purely for shark fin soup sharks have their fins chopped off and then the rest of their bodies thrown back into the ocean there are millions of sharks being killed this way and the fin, I understand, brings no flavour whatsoever to the soup I couldn't leave Kaylee without talking to her about that
3: Yes, absolutely I'm so glad that you brought it up because usually you know, I have to bring up that conversation and, and it is something that we really want to talk about and highlight because that is why we're doing this and why we have the entire conservation aspect of our team is to conserve these animals and conserve nature. And um it is really sad because we can have these beautiful, awesome, you know, interactions with sharks and that's why we're so blessed that we were able to get so much media exposure, you know, and we thank you guys for for calling us and reaching out to us because we want to spread the truth about sharks to eliminate that fear in hopes that if people weren't maybe so scared of sharks they might want to help and protect and conserve the animals and they need it now more than ever because of shark fin soup as you said definitely commercialized fishing in general can be very detrimental to sharks the way that we fish these days with long lining and various nets and trawling um, it, it does cause a lot of bycatch. Um, so, if you want to help sharks or any marine life, you know, always eating less or more sustainable seafood options are great. But especially in various parts of Asia, it started specifically in China, um, they actually consume shark fin soup. So, sharks all around the world, mainly in a lot of uh, more third world countries, uh, the animals are being killed, they're uh, caught into the boats. The fins are sliced off, the rest of their bodies thrown over. This is not something that they survive. Um, they, are, they do die after this, but a very slow and painful death. It's very, you know, inhumane way to do it. It's um, extremely unsustainable because the rate, actually, over several decades of studies is that sharks are being killed, an estimated, about 100 million sharks annually, which is about two to three every single second. So, yes, it is a startling number, and I really, you know, don't even want everyone to take my word for it. Like I said, go watch these documentaries, Google it, you know, look it up, do some research on your own as well. Um, but it, it is very startling, and it's happening all around the world, and even, you know, places where finning is banned. For example, here in Hawaii and Florida and very various places, even in the U.S., we can't turn a blind eye from it because even if the finning is banned yes there are illegal operations that get caught um because there's not enough enforcement into it and then not only that even in the u.s we still do import and export the fins so it's huge they're still coming through here on their way to these different um you know maybe from like south america on their way to asia they'll they'll pass through um even our own countries um i'm not sure about how the uk what those laws are but Mm. that's what we're really working on Right now, um, there is a petition going around on the Instagram of Jim Abernathy that anyone can go sign a petition to stop the import and export of fins in Florida. So that would be a huge help and that's something everybody can do um, right now to help with the shark fin trade because it is really brutal.
0: It really is. And if you do want to sign any petitions for that, I'm sure you can find them on uh, the internet Uh, It it is an awful, awful practice. But we are coming up to the end of the show. John Ford will be coming up after the news with Getting Bristol Home. But You could also go to loveandscience.podbean.com and find our podcast, which is all the chat, all the interviews, but none of the music. And it would be remiss of me not to mention that my own podcast, The Cosmic Shed, features some longer conversations with Professor Joe Dunkley, the cosmologist we heard from at the start of the show, and Adrian Mellet, the professor who told us that the megalodons were wiped out by supernova explosions.